Good morning. Um, <clears throat> one of the people that's been in the hospital, as many of you probably already know, is Todd. Got his gallbladder out. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I stepped in because he was having gallbladder pain. And so I told him you should take that thing out. And he said, well, if I'm going to take it out, you're going to have to do it again. So here we are again. Um, I was thinking the gall of him. That was too obvious of a joke, so I won't say it. Uh, we'll just leave it there. Um, I've thought of all sorts of jokes surrounding that to tease him with. You can take the opportunity when you see him. Um, so he's doing, he's doing well. Uh, I talked to him yesterday, and uh, he texted me pretty much in the middle of the night that he was praying for me. Um, so I think things are still kind of a little bit messed up for him, but uh, he's doing well. Should be back soon. Well, four in the morning seems the middle of the night for me, um, at least. Um, right here on the front end, Todd told me, he said, look, there's a lot of people, you've got to remember, there's a lot of people that don't know much about Eternity Bible College, so I want you to take a couple minutes and just explain what the school's about, why we started it, all those sorts of things. So if you already know all about the school, just bear with me for a minute. I try to be careful as the president of the school not to take my opportunities here preaching to necessarily kind of say things about the school, but Todd told me he was going to and basically told me I had to. Um, so I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it. I just try and be careful with that. Uh, we started about eight years ago in 2004. August 2004 was the first time we offered classes. And God's favor was shown on the school from the very beginning. We had 100 students in our very first class. And it was exactly the number that we were praying for. Um, it's a fun story. We actually had 98 students signed up. And um, we went and prayed. And God brought two more that day. So there was exactly 100 um, God was just showing us his favor, and over the years, he has continually done that. And the reason that we started it, actually the reason that I do what I do, goes back to a conviction I have. Um, I heard a sermon, and it made me really think about the reality that as the church, every generation must train up the next generation. And the illustration I think of is like a relay race, where you know each guy, the guy starts off with the baton, right? And he runs a lap, and then he gets to the place called the transition zone. And what's supposed to happen in the transition zone is as you're running, someone else starts running right in front of you, you hand the baton off to them, and then they run a lap, right? And this just keeps going, lap after lap after lap. And the conviction came over me, what happens if I run my lap, or if we run our lap, and you get to the transition zone, and there's nobody there? Or you get to the transition zone, and the people that are there don't know how to run, and so they take the baton, and they kind of stand there with it. What do we do? And I realize the church has to reproduce herself every generation. And not only do we have to reproduce ourselves, but we have to reproduce people that will then reproduce themselves. Right? So the church keeps going on generation after generation. And that was the conviction of my life. That is the, the purpose of my life. I believe what God has called me specifically to do within his body is to train those that will take the baton and run the next lap. And as we looked at it and we said, what are we going to do and what are we going to do differently? Because we, we're not just going to be like every other Bible college. The first thing was we said, we want to be tied in with the local church. We, we don't want it to be something that's separate from local churches. And so we have a local church mentor program where every student has a mentor in the local church, is involved in ministry in that local church, and is connected in everything that they do. And we push everything that we can towards the local church. 
And just to give you a little bit of a, a sense of, of how that's been working out, we have 25 graduates. You're all invited in three weeks, Saturday the 19th, EBC graduation. We have 25 graduates, our largest class ever. And those 25 graduates are serving in 19 different local churches. It's amazing the effect that what God is doing is using the school and the things that are happening there to begin to affect this valley and to affect this county and starting to go global and affect things around the world. And it's my blessing and my joy to hear back how things are being affected. We will have, after those 25 graduates, over 100 graduates and hundreds more that have been trained in various sorts of capacities. But that was only one piece. The other piece for us was that we believe that If we run our lap and we go to hand the baton off to someone and they've got a 20-pound ball chained to their ankle that's called student debt, that they will not be able to run their lap the way that they're supposed to. And I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, but everyone is in an uproar about student debt. Student debt now has gone over $1 trillion. It now exceeds consumer debt. The only thing larger in terms of debt is mortgages. That makes student debt the largest unsecured debt in our nation. People in their 30s average over $28,000 in debt. Our entire four-year curriculum is $22,000. That is less than what most people in their 30s still owe in debt from what they got coming out of school. And when you hear all the news stories, everyone's talking about, well, we've got to give them better loans, and we've got to forgive some of their debt, and what about bankruptcy? And no one's attacking the root of the problem, which is the cost of the education in the first place. And we looked at it and we said, there's no reason, like education in general, but especially a Bible education, there's no way that you should be strapped with $20,000, $40,000, $60,000 of debt to learn the Bible. And we said, there's no reason you should have to do that. We think it's actually immoral to have to charge that much because you're doing all sorts of things. And we said, you can do this differently. And the thing is, the establishment would look at us and say, well, of course you can say that. And we said, okay, well, we're going to show you. And so what we've done is we've done things completely differently than the way the establishment does them, and we're doing things differently, and we're able to offer it for $22,000 for an entire four-year curriculum. And at the same time that you see out in the world that prices are going up, the quality of education is going down. Multiple studies have shown that after two years of education at most universities, students have learned nothing more than what they already knew in high school. And colleges know this, so what they're starting to promote is the, the experience. Come for the college experience. Do you want to pay 60000 $60, in debt for a four-year experience that involves learning how to drink as heavily as you can and puke and then go do it again? You start to read some of the stuff that's going on at the Ivy League schools, these ones that are pillars of education, and you realize something is majorly broken in our system. So we're offering a rigorous education that I believe is at least as good, if not better, than many of the other Bible colleges out there at a price that is affordable, and we believe it can be done differently. So that's where... Thank you. It's... It's all the praises to the Lord, because honestly, like, if you guys know who I am and knew my history, you'd be like, there's no way he's a Bible college president. <laughs> like, that guy, you know, son of hippies, party crazy, not, not, not a Bible college president. My friends from high school are all like, really? Um, not going to that school. It's just crazy what God has done, and he started it through the vision of the elders here nine years ago to think through, let's do something differently, and just to watch the faithfulness through the years 
And the reality is for us to offer an education at that kind of price, it requires churches and donors to partner with us to help supply it. I, I tell students, I said, look, we keep your tuition low for, because of three things. We share sacrifice among three people. Yes, you pay tuition. And that's hard for some of you. Most of our students are self-supporting. That's part of the sacrifice. Our staff and our faculty all just come look at our parking lot sometime. You'll see the kind of cars we drive. Um, <laughs> we live as simply as we can because we don't think that it's okay. Look at what some of the presidents of some Bible colleges make. Is it okay for people to be going out with debt when you're making that kind of a salary? You guys answer that question. I know what my answer is. And the third one is that we have churches and donors that help contribute towards what we're doing in order to keep that low. I see it as an investment in the future of the church. And so I just want to encourage you, we have, for this year, we have a $75,000 shortfall between now and the end of June. That's in terms of scholarships that we've given away to students and in terms of just what we need to operate. Uh, We're looking for people that would... Go, give to the school regularly, just as a regular investment, $10 a month, $20 a month, $100 a month. We'd love for you to invest in the school in that sort of a way. Give a one-time gift, anything. I'm, I'm open. Um, just don't give me cash. That's not, because then, you know, it's just not supposed to do it that way. Um, I'd love for you to come to the benefit next Saturday. I'm going to share more about the school. Um, there'll be opportunities to sign up to donate there. You can go to our website. You can talk to me. Um, all, all sorts of different things like that. Um, other ways you can get involved. Um, donating is a huge thing. Our students, I share with them at orientation just the, the reality of, of what a responsibility and a stewardship they have, and they take it very seriously, that the gifts that people give is something that they then steward well. Um, other ways you could get involved is let people know. We have an online program. People anywhere in the country, anywhere in other countries, can take our entire four-year curriculum online, stay involved in ministry in their local church. That's why we do it that way. Um, You can come take a class. If you want to take it for personal enrichment, it's free. We have around 200 students who are just taking it for personal enrichment every semester. Come take a class and please pray for us. I don't say that as the Christian thing to say. I say that because the endeavor that we're doing is something that the enemy would want to attack more than anything to stop people before they ever get out of boot camp, before they ever get to the battle lines, to stop them there, to attack those that are training them, to attack them in their personal lives. So I just beg you, please be praying for us. So that's my extended announcement about EBC. Um, That's it for this year. Maybe in another year I'll tell you. But Now, as we come to John chapter 8, verse 31, we're going to cover the section from 31 to 59, which is a, a very large section. Um, I'll move as quickly as I can so that you're not here until lunchtime. But I want, as you're coming to this, I want you to imagine with me that you, you meet a young man on the street, and you guys begin to talk, and he says, yeah, I'm on the U.S. cycling team. And you go, really? And you kind of look at him. He's about 120 pounds overweight. And he's kind of breathing hard from just walking down the street. And you start to ask him questions, and He's never actually even heard of the Tour de France. He doesn't know who Lance Armstrong is. And he kind of doesn't even have enough balance to walk down the street. What would you think about what that guy said about being on the U.S. cycling team? Or what if you, were, you meet a man at a friend's birthday party and he tells you he's a firefighter and being the kind of you know, courteous, nice Christian that you are, you start to ask him some questions and he can't even tell you what station number he's at. He doesn't even know how to handle a hose. He doesn't know how to work a radio What would you think about this guy who claims to be a firefighter that doesn't know those things? 
Or if you meet a young woman at, at Starbucks and you just start chatting and you're there kind of enjoying your latte and you're chatting a little bit and she says, oh yeah, I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse for 15 years at a local hospital. You say, oh, what local hospital? And she doesn't know. <laughs> then she thinks ICU stands for I'm caring for you. <laughs> and then she doesn't know how to take blood pressure. Like, what would you think about her? Right? It's obvious to us that saying you're something doesn't mean you are that something. Right? That when you are that something, whether it's a firefighter or a cyclist or a nurse, there are certain characteristics of your life that everyone who's like that will evidence. And what we're going to see in the passage that we have here is that Jesus is going to say, those that are truly disciples of mine look a certain way. And that there are many people, and there are many people that are here this morning that go around saying, I'm a cyclist, but they're 120 pounds overweight, and they don't even know what the Tour de France is in a spiritual sense. Jesus' point is that there are people who say they believe in him, but in reality it's something completely different. They, believe, they say they believe in Jesus, but what Jesus is going to say is you're actually enslaved, enslaved to your sin and don't even realize it. You see, Jesus is addressing specifically, it says in verse 31, those who believe, and yet the way John keeps showing us that there are those who believe but don't really believe. You see, they were not ready to yield to Jesus in the far-reaching allegiance to King Jesus that he calls us to. And I want to suggest to you, this may be the most dangerous spiritual state for a person to be in. And that my concern is that there are people here this morning that are in that spiritual state, and you are self-deceived, and it's the worst state for you to be in. And if by the end of today you are so angry with me because I point that out to you that you want to walk out, I will be happy because that's a better state for you to be in than in the state where you were deceived thinking everything was okay. And that's exactly what Jesus does with them. Before we even look at the passage, I just want you to stop for a second, and I want you to answer this question. Are you a true disciple of the Lord Jesus? Do you have an authentic faith or is it a false faith? If you're the kind of person that the very fact that I'm asking that question makes you angry and makes you defensive and immediately want to run to all sorts of other, well, how dare you say that to me? I want to suggest to you that is one of the strongest evidences that you probably do not have a genuine faith. That those that are truly followers of Jesus, when confronted with, you know what, I'm not sure you're a believer, their first reaction is, really what? What is it in my life? How can I change my life? What is it that you're seeing? Not, well, no, you don't understand, but I do this and I do that. And that's what we're going to see with the Jews here. They immediately move towards posturing, appealing, and changing, and shifting. Look with me, verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're the offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see, Jesus right off the bat says, There is a distinction between those who are truly my disciples. It's the word authentic, authentic disciples, as opposed to those who merely believed in him. And he says the difference is, abiding in his word. His word is the totality of his message, of who he is, who he claimed to be in its totality, and that those that abide and remain in it, hold to it, grasp it, love it, those are those that are truly disciples according to Jesus. 
He isn't saying this is a condition of discipleship. Like if you do that, then you become. He is saying this is what discipleship consists of. You see the difference? It's not, oh, if I do that, then I become a disciple. No, discipleship consists of abiding, remaining, holding to, persevering in the message of Jesus, in holding to the truth of who he is and what he says. And he says the result of that, the result of abiding in his word, is that you will know the truth. You see, it's a commitment to Jesus that precedes understanding. It precedes knowing the truth. When you give him and his word allegiance, then he gives you the knowledge of the truth, and that knowledge then sets you free. You see, some of us want all the evidence up front. Tell me everything up front, and then maybe I'll decide. And Jesus says, no, it's not going to work that way. I am calling you to give your allegiance to me as king and lord and to submit to my word, and when you do that, then you will know the truth. Then you will be set free. And it doesn't work the other way around. And notice that, see, he he emphasizes truth throughout this whole passage over and over. Two times here in verse 40, verse 44, verse 45, verse 46, it's about truth. But this isn't truth in like an abstract philosophical sense. What is truth? But this is truth as embodied in the person and message of Jesus. This is truth that saves, truth that liberates, truth that sets free. And part of what makes this whole thing difficult for us is we live in a world where the concept of truth has been distorted and twisted so that we live in a world where people say, well, there's, there's truth that is facts, you know, like things that we can see, and then there's truth that is values. And values are really just kind of opinions. And everything pertaining to religion is over in the opinion category. So what's good for you is good for you and not for me. And so we live in a world that, that's like that, and people try and tell us, well, yeah, you can hold to that Jesus thing. With, and Jesus will not leave us in that kind of a situation. The question, who is Jesus, is not a, an opinion question, a value question. The question, who is Jesus, is a fact question, a question of reality and a reality that has implications. And he is going to, through this entire passage, drive home the reality of those implications. You see, either Jesus is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and the only savior of mankind, or he's not. And that is not a matter of opinion, It's a matter of fact, and that when we look at Jesus and who he says he is in this passage, we are not left with the option of saying, well, it's okay if you believe in Jesus, but I'm good where I am. It's either he is or he isn't. You accept him or you reject him, and he's going to drive that home more and more through the passage. Now, the great thing about this truth is that it liberates. It brings true freedom. You see, some people think following Jesus is a matter of restrictions. Oh, I start following Jesus, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. And Jesus says, no. You understand that all of that stuff is actually enslaving you. And I'm coming to set you free that following me gives you true freedom. The problem is people don't usually realize they're enslaved. May may I even say that I, I think most times that people are enslaved, they don't even realize it. And look, in verse 33, they deny that they've ever been enslaved. And you think of the foolishness of this. Anyone who knows the history of the Jews, it's like, you're just a history of enslavement. You got Egypt, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, now the Romans. Like, you've been enslaved throughout your history. How can you possibly even say that you've never been enslaved? And for me, this highlights just the the extent of our ability to self-deceive. We can deceive ourselves so much. And as I've shared before, the difficult thing about deception is you don't know you're deceived. Because that's the point. That's what it means to be deceived. You with me? 
So you can't go around saying, oh, I'm not deceived. Well, you can't know that, right? You've got to, because if you're deceived, then you don't know that you are. You guys getting it? It just doesn't work that way. And I think of our capacity for self-deception in terms of our enslavement. I, I think of people, I can quit this addiction. I'm not addicted to this. I can quit this anytime I want. The self-deception that, you know, this relationship that I have, there's nothing wrong with it. My wife doesn't need to know about it. My husband doesn't need to know about it. The capacity for self-deception, this isn't going anywhere. I, I don't really find my identity in food. I just enjoy eating a lot. I don't find my identity in my job. I just like working a lot. I don't find my identity in my family. It's just that I do everything I can to possibly protect them and keep them there. And it just goes on and on. I'm really pretty generous with my money. The Bible says money is the most deceptive thing that there is. And you cannot know when you're deceived. I'm really pretty generous. I'm not dead in my sin. I don't need a savior. The capacity for self-deception, and I think the worst capacity, the worst possible self-deception is I'm a believer in Jesus when you're not. And our capacity to be there is incredible. And you see that this group of Jews who had believed in him are already beginning to reject his word. How is it that you say we'll become free? So Jesus answers, verse 34, read the next section with me. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, that's his way of drawing your attention. I'm going to say something important. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus immediately makes clear, I'm not talking about political or physical enslavement here. I'm talking about something much more insidious, something much more deceitful, slavery to sin. And you see, Jesus leaves no wiggle room for those that think that, you know what, I am the master of my sin. That that is the lie and the deception of sin, is that we think we can master it. That, you know, this thing that I'm doing, this, I'm in control of it. And Jesus says, no, that when you practice that, it becomes your master. You are not the master of it. And see, the, the thing is that with physical slavery, the master sleeps. You might be able to escape from the master, but when you are enslaved to sin, it's with you all the time. This is a master that never leaves. It's with you whether you wake, whether you sleep. It's with you where you think. It's with you everywhere you go. This is a master that is much worse than any type of physical master. And you see, the way sin works is that it offers some fleeting pleasure and doesn't tell you there's a price to be paid later. It's like, I've shared before, that it's like eating a steak that's laced with arsenic. This is an amazing steak. It's great. A couple hours later, you're dead. That's how sin works. You think it's great. I, I was thinking, it's, also, it's a lot like skydiving without a parachute. I saw there was a t-shirt at a, at a par, uh, uh, skydiving place, and it says, you don't need a parachute to skydive. You need a parachute to skydive twice. I thought, gosh, that's pretty profound. And I think that's exactly what sin's like. Woo! Uh-oh. And that's the way Proverbs describes it. It's over and over that we think it's going to be great, and at the end it leads us to enslavement and death. It made me think of a song. I don't know if any of you saw the movie Crazy Heart um, with Jeff Bridges, but he sings a song in there that is just profound. He says, I was going where I shouldn't go, seeing who I shouldn't see, doing what I shouldn't do, and being who I shouldn't be. A little voice told me it's all wrong, 
Another voice told me it's all right. You could think I was strong, but lately I had just lost the plan and listened to the chorus. Funny how falling feels like flying for a little while. Funny how falling feels like flying for a little while. I thought, wow, isn't that the truth? That you just think, wow, I'm flying. No, you're not. You're falling. You just don't realize it yet. And that's exactly what sin does. And you see, Jesus then describes the difference between a slave and a son, and his point is that because he is the Son of God, he can offer freedom indeed. And when he talks about being free indeed, it's showing us that this is true freedom, that many of us think that we've gotten freedom, but what we've really gotten was bondage. I think of the the free love movement of the 60s and 70s, which I'm a product of, but was it freedom? Was that sexual freedom, or was that just more bondage disguised as freedom? It was bondage disguised. It was masquerading as freedom. I think of many people that are pursuing financial freedom and in pursuing financial freedom enslave themselves to their job. That too many times in this world, what, it isn't freedom indeed. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you should be in debt and a bunch of things like that. It's just that if it becomes something that enslaves you, it's not freedom indeed. It's not what Jesus is offering Now, Jesus admits, yeah, you're the offspring of Abraham, but he's saying you aren't really his children because of what you're doing. You're trying to kill me. He's actually admitted back in verse 28 that they are going to succeed in killing him. There's a point coming. He's saying that that's what it's like. And then he begins implying they've got a different father from him, right? I speak what I've seen from my father. You do what you've heard from your father, which leads then to the next section. Read with me verse 39. So they answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, that's not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father did. And they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You see, they catch the insinuation that Jesus is making. You've got a different father. And they're like, wait a second. Do you know who you're talking to here? You don't know who you're talking to here. We are sons of Abraham. You've got to get this straight. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, it doesn't matter what you say. You're doing things that Abraham never did. Abraham didn't try and kill, didn't reject God. He wasn't the one that wanted to kill God's Messiah. And you see, they were trusting in the fact that they were children of Abraham. And I'm pretty sure there's not a lot of people here that are saying, oh yeah, I know I'm saved because I'm a children of Abraham. But I'm concerned that there are some here that when faced with, well, are you doing the things you're supposed to I, I was baptized. I was catechized. I was raised in a Christian home. I've done these religious activities, that that's what we resort to instead of what he says, which is abiding in his word. And when Jesus says, this is not what Abraham did, it's the same thing we were saying earlier. Saying something doesn't make you that something. 
Actually being it is something different. Jesus begins to look at him. And before he gets to actually saying it up front, he kind of says, you know, there's a family likeness, though. You're not like Abraham, but you are like someone else. You're a lot like this other guy who I th- that's who your father is. And they're like, wait a second. We're, we are legitimate children. We're not born out of sexual immorality. Probably in that is a little bit of a slap at Jesus. You know, your mom kind of got pregnant before marriage thing with your dad. So they're kind of slapping him. We weren't born of sexual immorality, kind of like you were. And he says, no, you're missing the point. And in verse 42 to 47, Jesus drives the point home as hard as you can. And what you see with Jesus is that as he begins to confront them, they become defensive. No. And then he pushes harder, and they become more defensive. And Jesus finally says, all right, I'm going to drive it home as hard as I can. Because, like I said earlier, that those that become defensive at that confrontation, whether your faith is real, are most likely those that do not have an authentic faith. That's what makes it so difficult, because I know that those of you in this room right now that are most bugged by what I'm saying are the ones that most need to hear what I'm trying to tell you. You're the ones that need the truth that Jesus is saying, this is what will set you free, and yet you are going to, there are going to be people that are just like you, just, nope, keep just throwing up roadblock after roadblock, posture, defend, all the way through. And this is what Jesus said. He goes, look, you can't say you love God and want to kill me. Here's why, because God sent me. That doesn't make any sense. That's pretty straightforward logic, right? You love God, God sent me, that means you would love me. You hate me, therefore you don't actually love God, you're a liar. It's pretty straightforward logic, and they're pretty frustrated with it. And he says, let's get to this point. Why is it that you don't understand what I'm saying? The point is because you cannot bear to hear what I'm saying. You, You are unable to. The point is they refuse. He says, you can't hear my words. Like the, the things that actually are, because you refuse to believe the content of what I'm saying. This goes back to what he said at the very beginning, right? That when you abide in my word, then you shall know the truth. He's telling them, you're refusing to accept the reality that I am king and you should give me allegiance. You're refusing to accept my word, the content of my message. Therefore, you are unable to hear the words that come out of my mouth. They will not go into your ears. He says, your will is in bondage. And there are some of you this morning, it was our prayer this morning, is that for those of you that are in that state, that God will give you a spiritual ability to hear. And then he brings it, verse 44, you're of your father, the devil. We went from those who had believed in him, verse 31, to verse 44, you're of your father, the devil. This is quite an escalation. And we're not done yet. That's what's crazy. And he says, look, here's why. Because you have a family resemblance. You want to kill me? Ah, he's a murderer from the beginning. Right? What did sin bring? Sin brought death, the very beginning. He's been a murderer since the beginning. Then he says, in like multiple ways, he's a liar, father of lies, no truth in him, all these sorts of things. And that's what's happening to you. So you are one that hates truth, loves lies, and that's why you won't hear what I'm saying. Because I tell you the truth. Jesus is saying, look, the reason you're rejecting my message is because it is truth. And you are one who, by your very nature, as one who ha- has your descent from, the, from Satan, you are one who rejects that which is true. See, it's not although I tell you the truth, it is since I tell you the truth, you do not believe, verse 45. Now, Jesus turns it around on them. He says, okay, which one of you can convict me of sin? Can you think about anyone that would ever dare say such a thing? 
Would you ever dare in the middle of kind of a conversation like this say, well, look, can you convict me of any sin? No, we know it's just way too easy. It shows Jesus' confidence in the fact that they don't do anything. Instead, they do this, you know, attack on his character. We'll see in a second. Shows that they have nothing that they can bring against him. And the question I have for you, the question we still have to answer, can any of us convict Jesus of sin? Because if we can't, then we need to accept his word. That's what he says. If you can't then you need to listen to what I'm saying. And so for all the people that Jesus is a great teacher, he's this and he's that, no, either he is or he isn't. And if, he, if you can't say he's not who he says he is, then you need to listen to everything that he has to say. And he says, I tell you the truth, and why don't you believe? Just as someone who is deaf can't enjoy the thrill of music and someone who can't see can't enjoy the beauty of a painting, he says those that are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf cannot hear his word. You you are not of God. You have no spiritual sense, no spiritual ability to even hear these things. You see, the reality is your response to Jesus evidences, your response to these realities evidence whether you are truly his or not. Which brings us to the, the culmination as this thing reaches a pinnacle. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I'm going to attack your character now. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you've not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I did not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Went from they believed in him to you're of your father the devil to they're trying to kill him. You see the escalation there because Jesus is confronting with truth. He will not allow people to live in that continual state of being false believers. And you see, they accuse him of being a Samaritan and having a demon. He just pretty much ignores. He's like, I don't have a demon. In fact, I honor the Father, which is pretty much the complete opposite of having a demon. You, on the other hand, just dishonor the Father. So he just kind of blows the whole thing off. And he goes, look, I'm not seeking anything of myself. In fact, you know what I do? Is anyone who keeps my word will never see death. He puts it this way, death will he never see, emphatically. And, and, and their logic is pretty impeccable, right? They're kind of like, well, wait a second. Okay, now we know you've got a demon because Abraham and the prophets died. Um... Now, so you, you, you can't be greater than them, so how can you say that you're not going to die and that people aren't going to die? Well, the presumption in the middle is that he's not greater than Abraham. He's like, ah, your logic breaks down here, sorry, because if I am greater than Abraham, then it actually makes sense. And he tells them, this one who glorifies me is the one you call God, but he really isn't your God because you don't even know him. And when he gets down to verse 58... Right? They're like, what are you talking about? Abraham rejoiced to see you. What, are you. what are you talking about with all this? 
And you see, he truly, truly, again, he's drawing their attention in verse 58 to this emphatic statement that he's going to make. Now, you've got to understand the background of this. Let me read you Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Moses says to God, this is when Moses is being called by God to go and tell the people about God. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Yahweh is from the Hebrew word to be, I am. There's, it's, it's God saying, I am the always existent one, when he tells them that. And so when Jesus stands up and tells them, before Abraham was, talking about Abraham as one who was temporal, I, not I was, but I am. He could not have said any more clearly that I am the creator God of the universe. I am Yahweh come in the flesh. Which to them was complete blasphemy. Absolute blasphemy. They could have tried a legal process of uh, trying Jesus, but at this point their passions are aroused and they just start grabbing stones. Right? They're, they're in the temple area. There probably was some construction going on and they're grabbing right, whatever they can grab and they're, try, they're going to try to kill Jesus. And it says that he was hid. Seems to be that the father protected him and said, nope, not time yet. You see, when Jesus is killed, it's on his terms. It's not at the moment when they, in their passions, take him. It's when he says, it's time for you to take me. And he makes that evident over and over. They come to arrest him. Who do you seek? Jesus. I am he. Boom, they fall down. Okay, get back up. You can have me now. I just want to show you I'm in control. Over and over. He's in control. Right? He is not just taken that way. Now, as we come just to some concluding thoughts, I want you to think about how would you respond, how do you respond to Jesus' claim to be the eternal creator God of the universe come in the flesh? Because your response to that shows truly what's going on in your heart. And as we think about this truth and as we're going to talk with people, we we have to realize we can't soft-pedal the truth. We can't We can't try to sell Jesus to people. We have to tell the truth because otherwise, you know, what if you got to verse 31 and those Jews who had believed in him just kind of went along through life thinking they were great? Jesus had to expose the falsehood of what they were believing. And we need to be faithful to do the same thing. It doesn't mean we need to be jerks. Sometimes people mistake telling the truth with being a jerk. Don't be a jerk, okay? Got that part straight? But we need to tell the truth and tell it clearly and tell it with love. Let me ask the question I asked you at the beginning. Are you an authentic follower of Jesus? And what evidence, what what is the evidence of your life that would demonstrate one way or the other the answer to that? Is Jesus your king? Does he get your full allegiance? Or are you someone who has multiple allegiances? You see, this is the most serious thing in the world. This is more serious than whether you're claiming to be a firefighter or not, whether you're claiming to be a cyclist or not. This is the most important question. For us to be able to answer. Here's some questions based on this passage that will help you answer that question. Ask yourself, do I abide in his word? Do I remain in it, hold to it? Do I hold to his word? Does his word find a place in me? Is it at home within me? 
Am I enslaved to sin or am I free indeed, as Jesus says? You may need to ask other people in your life to look at your life to help you answer that question. You can ask yourself, do I love Jesus even when he says hard things? Even when he says difficult things, do I still love Jesus? Is my life characterized by lies or by truth? Because it shows our descent. Do I hear the words of God? In other words, do I have spiritual hearing? Do I have ears to hear? Do I honor Jesus with my life? Do I, when he says that he is the I am, does that inspire worship or anger and frustration and questioning and wanting to defend and move around? Because if you are truly his, that should inspire worship. You see, if you're enslaved to sin this morning, my prayer is that you will be set free. That if you are one who has been an inauthentic, false believer, have been led to believe something false, that this morning you will be set free and free indeed. And that's my prayer for you. Let me pray. Father, take your word. Take the hard truths of your word. Thank you for Jesus just speaking truth so clearly and being blunt when he needs to. God, I pray that you would take your word by your spirit. You would work in the hearts of all of us this morning. Those of us that are truly yours, encourage us in that. Those that are false, redeem them out of that. Redeem them out of their slavery. Break the bonds of slavery. Lord, I pray that this morning those that are in bondage to their sin would be set free to walk in freedom indeed, to walk in new life. God, that is your desire is for us to walk with you in new life and rejoice in it. I pray that you would do all this in the name of our Savior King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.